This morning, we continue our R&R summer series, R&R, rest and relaxation. Some of us get that opportunity in the summer to change gears a little bit and slow down, take a vacation, or go on a trip with hundreds of middle schoolers. And uh, our summer sermon series is really uh, devoted towards a little different kind of R&R, and that's a spiritual R&R. And we've done a number of sermons thus far. Mine this morning is entitled Remain and Regroup. Remain, remain in Christ. Remain in the faith. Stand firm in what you have proclaimed to believe. Remain in Jesus. Uh, how do we do that? We, man, we really can't. The way we do that is we know and believe that God has a hold of us and he has promised to never let us go, right? We remain because he is faithful and that's a beautiful thing. But we certainly can cooperate with that process. So one of the things we're doing this summer is we're looking at different texts to encourage you, to encourage us as a church to remain in Christ, to remember what that is and to hold fast to the gospel, hold fast to what we believe and have been shown by the Spirit to be true. So this morning, remain and regroup. My text is Acts 2, verses 42 through 47. It's really a part two of my previous sermon, uh, which was um, on Peter's uh, Pentecost sermon, the first sermon preached in the Spirit-filled New Testament church as recorded in Acts 2. So that's my text. But before we jump in, let me pray. Pray with me, please. Abba Father, thank you for creating for yourself a people whom you are drawing and preparing even this morning to spend eternity with you in a new heavens and on a renewed earth. Thank you for the saving work of our Savior Jesus, who is at your right hand even now. Thank you that he knows all of our names and our stories to the last detail. Thank you also for the Holy Spirit, which indwells many hearts in this room by your grace. Father, I ask you now that your Holy Spirit be poured out afresh on us here. Awaken and quicken our minds and our hearts. Enable us to hear understand, believe, and act on your gospel truths. Father, may your power sanctify our hearts. Cleanse my heart, Lord. Cleanse our hearts so that they can be filled with your spirit anew. Set us, your people, free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. Enable us, Father God, that we together, together, might continue to learn to love more freely, more boldly, more radically, and enable us to grow in maturity, Father, as well as in number. So, Father, have your way with us. Have your way with me, your servant. Father God, in your precious name I pray, amen. It's amazing to me just how many books that I have on my shelf, and I have lots of books if you've been to my office, and it's not an indication of my intelligence. It's probably more an indication of my insecurity, that if you come in my office and see lots of books, you'll think that I know the material in those books. 
Um, I think part of that is I like to have books at the ready because I never know what I'm not going to know, and I don't know a lot. So I have a large library of books I've collected through the years, and I, they're a ready reference for me. But I noticed the other day that I, on one section of my, of my, in, my, in my collection of books are a bunch of books that all have the title Blank Church. <laughs> um, and in that blank goes words like simple, sticky, total, prevailing church, connecting church, transforming church, all these books, all these contemporary writers, what are they trying to convey? It seems like this idea of what the real church is, is not as easy to stick as we'd like to think. So this morning, I'm going to look at this passage in Acts 2, 42 through 47, We're going to try to answer the question, what is the real church? Which leads to, what is the real Christian? Which has personal implications for moi and for you, right? Uh, We are the church. The church has come into the building this morning. The church is made up of each of us that believe and trust in Christ. So what is the real church? So to do this, what are we going to do? We're going to go to the source, right? Because there is a source. We're going to go to the origin We're going to go to the fountainhead of the spirit-filled church where the water is purest. Contemporary writers have great things to share, but since the God is rooted in real history, we can actually go to an authoritative historical record of the first spirit-filled New Testament community. So that's where we're going to go this morning. And we're going to ask the spirit to lead and guide us and to reveal Uh, to us, to our minds and to our hearts, what we may need to be reminded of. We need it. We need the scriptures, uh, as you will see as one of my applications, to have real hope in a real broken world. So we're studying Acts 2, 42 through 47. Um, Let me give you a little context. Yeah, good. It's up there. But let me give you a little context. The Apostle Peter's just preached his first sermon after the Holy Spirit has been poured out on 120 believers, just like the prophet Joel said would happen, just like Jesus recently had told the disciples was going to happen, the Spirit was poured out. 3,000 people, after Peter's sermon or his message, 3,000 people were freshly cut to the heart, convicted of their sin that they did not see a half hour earlier. They were cut to the heart. So Peter's message, by the power of the Spirit, explained using three Old Testament passages, one in Joel, one in Psalm 16, and one in Psalm 110, convinced his many in his audience that they were in part personally responsible for the execution of the Messiah of Yahweh God. Seeing and owning for the first time their own sin in fresh desperation, they asked Peter and the apostles, men and brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that morning, 3,000 new believers were added to the 120 
and the New Testament spirit-filled church began. A quick megachurch of three grand. Of kindergartners, spiritually speaking. With the apostles at the lead. Wow. And then this community, this new church in Jerusalem, immediately began living out what God by his spirit was putting inside of them through this outpouring or inpouring, should I say, of the spirit. So by studying today's text, we're going to gain some understanding of what we can be as his spirit-powered church, a local body of believers indwelt by his spirit, called and compelled to follow Jesus, a living savior. He is alive. Amen. He is alive. He died for us on the cross. He knows our name today. He is intimately acquainted with where we are as a church and you as an individual. He knows our hurts. He knows our hearts. And by the way, when you read this text, and maybe some of you already have, this kind of community, it is not utopian. It is not an ideal. It is a historic fact. It happened. And it is happening across our globe. But I think it's fair to ask. I think it's a good thing to do to stop and prayfully consider, Lord, are we, is Orangewood a spirit-powered church? Which brings it home. Are the elders spirit-powered elders? Is your pastor a spirit-powered Christian? That's a good question for me to take to the Lord and go, Lord, show me. Show me. Show me my heart. Cleanse my heart, Lord. Purify me that I may serve you as a, as a pastor, as an under-shepherd of Jesus in a God-honoring way. So let's read the text. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as many as had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The word of the Lord. Amen. This text reveals four evidences of an authentic biblical community, the Holy Spirit-powered church. So we're going to start with number one, a united community of regenerated people who willingly devote themselves to, one, learning and studying the apostles' teaching. What were their teachings about the apostles? Their words, both spoken and recorded, simply put, their words were about Jesus, about who he is, 
about what he said and what he did for us. The Holy Spirit led and enabled them, the apostles, to teach God's word and to explain God's will to this new church community. Let me turn your attention to some texts in the Gospel of John, chapter 14 and 16. Listen to these verses. Jesus to his apostles. This is Jesus speaking. So these are red letters on my page, just to help, help me remember. Jesus said this, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Then later he says, and when he comes, the spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he says this, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So what were the apostles' teachings? They were about how Jesus is the promised Messiah who came fulfilling all the messianic prophecies of old and bringing the good news of how broken sinners can be saved from the power of sin, death, and the devil unto eternal life. That the eternal kingdom of God was now present on earth. It's interesting in our men's group. I have a men's group and they are a great group of guys, friends. We meet weekly. We are in the word. We are cross-pollinating and encouraging one another to grow in our relationship with Christ and to learn how to be better disciple makers. But one of the texts we looked at recently talked about uh, Jesus sending out his apostles, sending out his followers to preach the gospel. And Scott Huber made this comment. He said, What was the gospel? Jesus hadn't died yet. He hadn't risen from the dead, but he commanded his apostles to go out and share the gospel. And at that point in time, the gospel was this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king eternal, the one who will come to judge the quick and the dead in the future, is here in the name of Jesus. And he's come not to be served. He's come to serve, to humble himself, to empty himself. Why? To model for us, brothers and sisters, how we are to reflect his character in this world, to empty ourselves, humble ourselves for the sake of reflecting the love of Christ onto others. So Christ came not to be served, but to serve by offering himself as a substitute to receive into himself on the cross the wrath of God that I deserve justly to receive even at this very moment. That you justly deserve to receive at this very moment. Christ came as our substitute so that we in turn, he having received the punishment for our sins, the wrath we deserved. And what do we get? We get the reward for a perfect life lived in full submission to his father in heaven. Amazing. We get that. We get the reward that through believing for yourself in Jesus, his obedient life lived, his sacrificial death on your behalf, 
his resurrection from the dead and his ascension into heaven. If you believe Christ is the Messiah who's come to bear the punishment of your sins on a Roman cross, died, rose again from the dead, is alive this morning and is offering to you good news to trust in him as Lord and Savior, he has the ready gift of eternal life for you. And I encourage you to receive that gift by the power of the Spirit. Do business with God in your heart. Ask him to reveal the truth to you about yourself, about this world, about himself, about who Jesus is and what he's done. Ask him. Many of us have already done that, but we forget. We leak We can be all strong in the spirit and feel good and invigorated about our walk with Christ and be aware of his presence and his goodness and feel blessed. And an hour later, right, we can be discouraged, nearly despondent, wondering if any of it's real at all. Why do I believe this crazy stuff? Jesus, help. Have you prayed that very short prayer recently? It's a good one. The power in the name of Jesus. Jesus, help. So there's the gospel. So the apostles, like Peter, were preaching and teaching these gospel truths to new converts, their families, their friends, and neighbors. And their teaching and preaching was done, interestingly enough, both in a public setting, likely in the in the court of the Gentiles, in the temple. That may have been where Peter delivered this sermon, where 3,000 plus responded. We expect many more than that were listening. 3,000 responded. It's probably in the temple. We don't know for sure. But this court of the Gentiles on a crowded Jewish festival day could hold 200,000 people. So we have the apostles preaching and teaching publicly in the temple courts, but also, where else? In private, in people's homes, around meals, at the table, in the kitchen. So this was an all enthusiastic learning and studying community, okay? That's what a spirit-powered church is looks like. It is an enthusiastic learning and studying community. These spirit-filled people were not free-spirited anti-intellectuals. They were not afraid of doctrine. They were actually being led by the Holy Spirit to do what? To sit under the authority of the apostles' teaching to learn doctrine. They were spiritually hungry and they sought to be taught. Are you sought? Do you seek to be taught? to be taught, sought to be taught. That's what we need to be. They were devoted to learning and knowing Jesus, his identity, his teaching, his mission. And this was the focal point of the early spirit-powered church. And the result was not an acquisition of knowledge. That wasn't the result of sitting under the apostles. What was the result? Radically transformed lives. That was the result. How do we know this? Because this text tells us that they began to live very differently from the world around them. Very differently from the world we live in. 
maybe very differently from the way we tend to live. They became different in focus, purpose, and action. So here's an application. Spirit-powered churches will always be New Testament studying communities. Spirit-powered churches will always be New Testament studying and learning churches. I don't mean to exclude the Old Testament. It's not what I'm intending there. We don't need to study the Old Testament. We do. It is the foundation for understanding the New Testament. But spirit-powered churches will always be New Testament studying communities. And spirit-powered people will always be New Testament studying people. Are you, brother, sister, regularly reading, studying, meditating on the Gospels, the Acts, the Epistles? Are you? While asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate its meaning? Because listen, apart from the Holy Spirit's illumination, you can't understand what God has for you in the scriptures. So I encourage you, don't just hear this and go, yeah, I know that. The next time you read a passage, remember to ask the ever-present spirit if he dwells in you. Ask him to reveal to you the impact and the import of the text that you are meditating on, reading, studying, discussing. And listen, if there's little interest in your heart for this, and I know even as a believer, there might be seasons where you say you're just dry. There isn't a desire to learn or understand scripture. There's two possibilities. If there's little to no interest in your heart, there's two possibilities. One is perhaps his spirit is not inside of you. Maybe you're a churchgoer. Maybe you've been doing this Christian thing for a really long time. And maybe for the entire time you've been wrestling with your lack of interest in Scripture. I just challenge you. Perhaps his spirit isn't inside of you. If not, you can receive his Holy Spirit by repenting of your self consuming sinful condition and receive Christ as your substitute, your rescuer, your redeemer, your master teacher, you could do that even this morning, even today. Or number two, perhaps you're drifting from the fellowship with him. You're experience, you've experienced closeness maybe at different times in the past, but not right now. You're not feeling it. If you're drifting away from a love of his word, then I encourage you to pray. Pray. What is that? Just talk to him. Talk to him heart to heart. No fancy words. No scripture memory. Just talk to him. Jesus, help. My love for you wanes. I'm not even interested in understanding or studying your word. Father, that's a problem. Help me. Give me a passion and a desire to know you through the vehicle you've given me, you've preserved for me your word. Ask him. Ask him to fill you afresh with the Holy Spirit and repurpose to get your heart focused back on him through his word. But remember, don't forget to ask the Holy Spirit to work through his word to align or realign your heart. So that's the first evidence, a learning 
and studying community. First evidence of a spirit-powered church. The second evidence of a spirit-powered church is a community devoted to loving one another through radical sharing. Loving one another through radical sharing. In verse 42, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The original Greek word for fellowship is koinonia. It means having something in common with another. It carries the idea of a sharing partnership. Koinonia has a shared in and a shared out aspect to it. And by the Spirit, this community was experiencing the fellowship, the koinonia. It's interesting in this verse in 42, how many times you see the definite, definite article, the, and that becomes important um, later on as well. But it's the fellowship, the koinonia, the Spirit-filled partnership sharing that only by the Spirit can a community experience. So by the Spirit, this church entered into a partnership, sharing in a relationship with God and each other and sharing out God's loving message of grace and truth. They shared in a new relationship with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as well as with each other. They shared in one spirit, pointing to one Savior, the one Son of one Father, offering one hope through one gospel that saves all who believe. It caused them to be joyously filled with gratitude. And then they gratefully shared out the gospel message that brought them joy and gladness. They could not not share what they had found in a redeemed, reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. They couldn't not share. So they shared in a lot of commonalities as a community, but they also could not help but share out. They gratefully shared out. They did not need to be guilted into sharing out. They did not need to be strong-armed into sharing out. They did not need to be manipulated into sharing out. They just shared out. It was a natural response to receiving in the spirit of the God of love. And gratitude oozed out. And it brought joy and gladness. And joy and gladness are no fun to experience if you don't have anyone to share them with, are they? They also fairly immediately remember these are brand new believers. These are brand new believers who, within a matter of hours, certainly days, started to be radically generous with one another in the community within which they lived. There's a variation on the word koinonia, and that is koinonikos. Guess what that word means in English? 
generous. Generous. And all who believed were together and had all in common, verse 44 says, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So as shared recipients of God's spirit, his children, guess what? As shared recipients of the spirit of God, his children begin to reflect the nature of God. It was just natural or supernatural, maybe I should say, right? That's amazing. They received the Spirit. They shared in a relationship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They shared with one another the mission, the passion, the heart of God, and they naturally or supernaturally became radically generous, not only with one another, but with the community that they were in. That's awesome. The Apostle John points out this goal of the church in 1 John 1, 3. Listen, here's John speaking. That which we have seen, remember he was an apostle, eyewitness of Jesus, eyewitness of the crucifixion, eyewitness of the resurrection. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too have fellowship, koinonia, with us And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Do you see how important to John, the reason he's sharing the message of the gospel is so that those who do not have koinonia get to experience koinonia. He can't help but share it out. So koinonia is a sharing in, yes. A sharing in, yes. But it's a sharing out. If the sharing out is not there, the sharing in is what? Healthy or unhealthy? So here's the application. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another go together by God's design. There is no such thing as a healthy Christian who does not go to church. Do you hear me? There is no such thing as a healthy, non-church-going Christian. I'm not saying that. Acts 2 is saying that. That a spirit-filled Christian is drawn by the Spirit to a relationship with God and drawn to a relationship of a group of others that are pursuing Jesus as Lord and Savior, following Jesus. Does that make sense? I guess you can define church in different ways. Certainly you can express church in different ways stylistically. But ultimately, a healthy Christian is only healthy because he's in koinonia with God and with brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's the first application of this second evidence. Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another go together by God's design. Also, fellowship with God and his people and becoming radically generous, go together as well. So that means if you're not growing in the ability to be radically generous, hear what I'm saying. If you're not growing in the ability to be radically generous, the apostles would say that's grounds for questioning if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Why? 
Because if you have the fruits of the Spirit, if the Spirit is inside of you, the fruit of the Spirit will come out over time. The nature of God is to be radically generous. The gospel is radically generous, is it not? We have a prodigal God who who spent excessively to come after us and redeem us and adopt us into his family. He is generous. And if his spirit is inside of you, you are becoming more radically generous. And that isn't just with your money. It includes your money. It includes my money. But it includes everything that we are. Time, treasures, talent. I don't belong to myself anymore in Christ, do I? I have been bought at a price. I have no rights. I don't need any rights. I'm in Jesus. And who is he? He has no rival. He has no equal. He's the second person of the Trinity. And I'm in him because of the gospel. I'm being transformed because of not because of me, not even because of you. I'm, in, I'm being transformed because of the Spirit of God that's working in and amongst us. And that's amazing. And it's amazingly generous of God. Listen to this quote. The Roman emperor, Julian, didn't like Christians. He calls them atheists in this quote I'm about to read. Why? Because... Caesars believed they were God. They wanted everybody to be subject to them. So atheism to Julian was Christianity. Listen to this quote. The Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the fourth century, fourth century, okay? Hundreds of years after this first spirit-powered church had grown and grown and grown and grown, right? Hundreds of years after the first spirit-powered Christian community, It had grown. Here's what the Roman Emperor Julian, writing in the fourth century, regretted the progress of Christianity because it pulled people away from the Roman gods. He said, quote, atheism, the Christian faith, atheism has been specially advanced through the longing, through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, the godless Galileans who worshiped Jesus, that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Wow. That's amazing. The third evidence of a spirit-powered church is that the community is devoted to worshiping God in public and in private through faith in Christ. You'll notice in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayers. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Because of the definite articles here, Peter is likely not talking about... He likely is talking about something more than just being devoted to sharing a meal and praying together. This is likely a reference to the Lord's Supper, to communion. 
that this early church was commemorating together in corporate worship. And it included specific prayers, likely around receiving the elements of bread and wine as the body and blood of Christ. This church was committed to worshiping God. Collectively together in the temple courts. Yet we read in verse 46 and 47, and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. The phrase, and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food, doesn't seem like communion, but seems to describe a less formal sharing of one's food with one another. We do that here, don't we? It's awesome. I get to eat my wife's yummy food and I get to eat your yummy food. We share our stuff. SOS. When you see or hear or think of SOS, think of this phrase. Share our stuff. We are the SOS in this dark world, are we not? How do we reflect that? We share our stuff. That's what the early church did. So different kinds of God worship was happening. Public worship in the temple, sometimes formally and sometimes informally. And how often was worship happening in this text? Once a week? Daily. Daily, day by day, this early church was seeking the apostles' teaching, worshiping God, fellowshipping with one another, sharing their stuff. Wow. It's powerful. Fourth evidence of a spirit-filled church is a community devoted to witnessing, testifying to the good news of Jesus that draws new believers. A witnessing church. This church was a witnessing church. The primary way God reaches people with the gospel is through this. I know it's crazy. I'm so sorry, especially for you kids in here. It's this. It's the spoken word. How was creation created? How did the apostles spread the message of Jesus Christ? How did Jesus spread the message of Jesus Christ? Through the spoken word. Can it be written down? Praise God. Thank you very much. Yes, it can. But how do you share this with a neighbor, a friend, a workmate, a student? How do you do that? You got to talk about it. And to talk about it, you got to be familiar enough with it to talk about it. And for me to be familiar enough to talk about it, even this sermon, I need to be around a bunch of people that help me understand it, that can talk about what they see in it. And I learn from them. I learn from hearing from my brothers and sisters in Christ in this community. I learn from reading commentaries and other authors. I do. I learn from that. I need to be learning and studying the apostles' teaching so that when I have opportunity to give a defense of what I believe, I know what I'm going to say. And even when I'm about to say that, what do I need to do? Ask the Holy Spirit to give me the words. I am utterly, continually, constantly dependent on the Holy Spirit in everything that I do. We all are. 
But do you ask him regularly? Do you ask the Spirit regularly to enable and to give you his word and understanding of it? So the primary way God reaches people is through the spoken word. One person sharing the gospel truths with another. Consider what had happened that morning. The Spirit was poured out on 120 people who immediately what? Began speaking in languages they'd never learned. (laughs) So that others who were within earshot, who spoke those languages, got to hear about who? Jesus. (laughs) That's Pentecost. It was miraculous. What was miraculous? What happened at Babel was being reversed. At Babel, God judged mankind and gave all these languages at Pentecost. God reversed it and gave people who'd never learned languages the ability to speak those languages so those with an earshot could hear it, hear the gospel, and respond. That's awesome. Witnessing church. They all had experienced the redemptive ministry of God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They experienced forgiveness, grace, mercy, freedom, adoption. This is worth sharing with others. (laughs) And they did. They couldn't help it. And what did God do in response? He added to their numbers daily. There's a sense in which both God and man work together to reach the lost. If we do nothing about witnessing, then mostly nothing happens. If we spend all our time energized sharing with each other what the word of God means to us, but we never turn around and reach out and ask God to give us courage, boldness, take risks. Mark Nick's sermon, take risks. Share with another person that you trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. It could be as, that could be it. I go to church, that could be it. (laughs) But season your conversation with salt, with those the Lord puts on your heart to begin that dialogue with. We need to be a witnessing church. Certainly with one another encouraging each other, but we got to turn outward and share that. And then God, God was adding to their numbers daily. Okay, so those are the four things. Um, I want to do one final illustration. I know it's 1114, but we need to do this. So I've uh, hurriedly asked my men's group, and by being all men up here, that, that's not intentional. I'm not excluding women. Um, I know I am kind of talking about the apostles, and they happen to be men, but I asked my men because I knew they were a ready, willing audience to come up for an illustration. So I'm going to ask these guys to come up. Um, And as they're coming, I want to read a text to you. It's out of 1 John 5. It's about walking in the spirit as it pertains to walking in the light. What does light do? It reveals. It exposes. If you guys want to grab a candle, that would be great. Listen to this, please. This is the message we have heard from him. This is John the Apostle speaking. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth, the light, is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word, and I would say his spirit, is not in us. So we're going to do an illustration and we're going to blacken this room. And we've blackened all the windows and all the doors and Chris up there is going to turn out all of the lights. It's going to get very dark. And I want to illustrate three things for you. I'm going to tell you what they are, then we're just going to do it. The first is that in the dark, the Holy Spirit illuminates and reveals. In the dark, the Holy Spirit focuses and directs. And I want you to be mindful because I'm going to start out by lighting one small candle. And I want you to notice how directive that one very small light is in a very dark room. It draws our attention to it, does it not? And then in the dark, the Holy Spirit not only draws together, because when you're in a really dark place and there is light, you tend to move towards it because it brings comfort. But in the dark, the Holy Spirit not only draws together, but the Holy Spirit then sends us out together to take that light into other dark places. So we're going to do this illustration together. We're going to start out. I'm going to start out with one candle. I would ask that we all just be quiet and take in the moment and observe the light, the one candle, the tongue of flame coming from this one candle. And then I'm going to ask my brothers to circle up and I'm going to let them light their candles as well. And we're going to circle up. We're going to be facing inward because we like each other and we enjoy spending time with each other. And these guys warm my heart on a regular basis. But then we're going to turn outward together. And I just want you to see the difference. And then when you see them turn out, when we all turn outward, anyone in here that has a cell phone, here's your participation part. Anyone that has a cell phone, turn on the flash, raise it over your head. You can even sway if you want. (laughs) All right. Then the sermon is over. Maybe with the exception of a quick prayer. All right. That's what we're going to do. So Chris, don't turn the lights out yet. Let's uh, move. Let's move up here. Let's move right here. No, move right here. Circle up. All right, I'm going to start out by lighting my candle. Uh, You might have to tip your wick up. All right, Chris, go. Yeah, when Chuck preaches, he ushers in the darkness. I'm so sorry. Only so that the light can be better seen. One, one candle. Shoulder to shoulder. 
Now you can add your light to it and look around the room. Look around. I see people. <laughs> I see a community. that has the light inside of it that may need to learn how to share it more readily that may need to learn how to be more radically generous that may need to learn how to be more of a learning studying community that may need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us hearts that desire to worship in public and in private everywhere we go but you know what I do see a community with the Spirit here at Orangewood. And Aslan is on the move. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that through the Spirit, we get to know you. We get to know one another. And we come to understand the world in all its realities. And we see more and more that the gospel of grace is the power of God to make all things new. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.